The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. We are in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we've only just begun. (laughs) Somebody should write a song. We've only just begun. Um, The servant on the mission. That seems to be Mark's theme. And today, Gospel Genesis, the beginnings of the Gospel in chapter 1, Jesus' first sermons and his first disciples. I want you to think with me for a moment, hopefully with sanctified imagination, what it must have been like when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit sat down together before creation and decided how they would save sinners. When, when I think about that, I, I think that it's, it's likely that, um, even though I'm, I wasn't there, of course, neither were you, but that some discussion must have taken place. And I, and I think about the dramatic and incredible coming of Christ as it's described in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think that would be a great way to introduce yourself. And believe me, when that day comes, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, that'd be quite a way to make an entrance. If God was going to make an entrance, that'd be quite a way to do it, and he will do it. And in fact, the Old Testament prophets predicted this, and they looked forward to this. In fact, in the first century, they were looking for the Savior to come like this. But God had another plan. And Mark describes it well for us in the words, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Quietly, humbly, serving others was the plan that God enacted and that Mark writes about. And in the plan, there would be the development of other leaders, other disciples, even other apostles. Now, in Maui, the destruction is so bad. Oh my, it's so sad. But these uh, banyan trees are quite interesting. Uh, When we were recently there, we saw them. And there's some discussion and hope that even after all the fire, these trees will survive. They will yet bloom again on the island. And uh, part of that is because they're so strong. Now, there is a saying in India 
that nothing grows under a banyan tree. Now, the reason is pretty simple, you see. It's a big tree. It spreads its branches, drops air roots, develops secondary trunks, and covers the land. A full-grown banyan may cover more than an acre of land. Birds, animals, and humans find shelter under its shade, but nothing grows under its dense foliage, and when it dies, the ground beneath lies barren and scorched. The banana tree is the opposite. Six months after it sprouts, small shoots appear around it. At 12 months, a second circle of shoots appear besides the first ones. Now six months old, at 18 months, the main trunk bears bananas, which nourish birds and animals and human beings, and then it dies. But the first offspring are now full grown, and in six months, they too bear fruit and die. And the cycle continues unbroken as new sprouts emerge every six months grow, give birth to more sprouts, bear fruit, and die. Some leaders are like banyan trees. <laughs> they have great influence and their ministries are widely productive and beneficial. However, they do not prepare for the transitions which will allow for the emergence of other leaders. They only equip followers, not leaders. Jesus Christ equipped his followers and equipped leaders. And we're going to see that today in the Gospel of Mark. That's the model for us. The opening scenes in the Gospel of Mark are in the region of Galilee. Now this is very curious and very interesting. I pause to think on it with you. For eight chapters, Mark will talk about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He will then take time to take us to the last week of Jesus' life, the journey to Jerusalem and then what happened in Jerusalem. Because he was an eyewitness to that. And you'll remember that we believe Peter informed him about what happened before that. It all happened in the region of Galilee. Now I find this very curious because Galilee is not a big area. It's 50 miles by 25 miles. And the Sea of Galilee is 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. Josephus, the early Jewish historian of that century, was at one time the governor of Galilee. And he writes that Galilee was a wonderful place. Man, it was thriving with commerce, especially around the fishing industry in the Sea of Galilee. He talks about the produce. He, he talks about all these things in celebration of the region of Galilee. But he also tells us the population was 15,000 people. So Jesus Christ came to the earth not to be served but to serve. He made his headquarters in a town called Capernaum on the coast of Galilee, the sea, and pretty much concentrated his ministry in that little northern region. But what he did transformed the world. It wasn't in Jerusalem. Would have expected it would have been there, but it wasn't. It was in Galilee. It wasn't in Nazareth because that was so rural. That wouldn't have worked but it was in the region of Galilee. This all fulfills an incredible prediction by Isaiah about the region. It's just amazing. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's Galilee. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people, oh, get this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. How great is it? It's Jesus. (laughs) On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Yeah. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. And when he comes again, that's what we'll see. And that's what we'll experience. But in his first coming, he honored Galilee, this little region with a population of 15,000. Amazing. So Jesus takes his first steps into ministry in Galilee. Jesus the preacher proclaims the gospel, that's verses 14 and 15, and Jesus the master calls his disciples, and that's verses 16 through 20. Let's read it. Let me read for you this this passage. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He's proclaiming the good news. Now, I find it curious he waited until John had been arrested. So what we read last week about the temptation, this didn't happen immediately. There's a space of time. And in fact, we believe that that space of time is described for us in the Gospel of John in John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. So it's possible that he was waiting until... John the baptizer was arrested, and he quietly began some ministry, and even met, as we'll see, the early disciples. But he showed patience, humility. He's given the honor to the baptizer. After he had traveled all the way down, remember, two weeks from Nazareth to be baptized, then to be tempted, and now he's waiting. So he's proclaiming the good news. The good news of God. Caruso, in the Greek, in case you needed to know that. It's an ongoing, continuous proclamation. And in fact, we'll read later in this chapter that he said after some prayer, listen, I need to go someplace else to preach. This is a primary focus of his mission. It's not all that he did, but it's a primary part of it. The, the, word, the verb suggests like a town crier. <laughs> Some of us can remember the days of town criers, maybe. Uh, I just found out this week in study that July the 8th is declared by Hallmark to be town crier day. I don't know if it's Hallmark or not, it probably isn't. But they celebrate what town criers did on July 8th every year. They went out under the authority of the king and they proclaimed to the community the message of the king. 
And Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel that was centered on him and his work, but it is called, of course, the gospel of God because God's the author and and God is the finisher and perfecter and, and all of that. And Peter, interestingly enough, echoes the same sentiment in his first letter concerning the salvation of prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even the angels long to look into these things. So, so Peter is echoing the very truth that Mark is talking about, that Jesus Christ fulfilled it all And then even the angels were longing to look into this stuff. And the prophets, hundreds of years before making these predictions, and even thousands of years, were were also curious. Now, the time has come. There's an urgency. The season is upon us. And, And in fact, the New American Standard translates the verb come much better. It actually should be translated has been fulfilled. Okay, so what it's saying is, it's begun and it will never end. Has been fulfilled. The very moment Jesus Christ began his public ministry and started to preach, he's telling them the season is now begun and it will never end. The season. I had an old friend in, in New Hampshire and it was July and we only get three days of summer in July in New Hampshire, and it was hot and dry, and I said, so what are you going to do to make hay? (laughs) We make hay when it's dry. Yep, we do. So the season of salvation has now been birthed, and much fruit will be born, and the kingdom of God has come near. Almost a very similar statement, almost repeating the same thing. Again, the verb is suggesting it has begun, and it will continue, and it will never end. And the future reign of Jesus Christ is the culmination of this, but he's reigning now. And he was reigning the moment that he spoke these words because the kingdom is in place whenever someone acknowledges him as king. When you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your king, you're part of the kingdom. You're under his reign. You're under his rule. You're under his lordship. And by grace, you're forgiven of your sins. (laughs) You promise heaven, all these wonderful blessings. He is the most wonderful master there ever has been or ever will be. So, when Paul summarizes his goal in life in Acts 20, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Yes, Paul. And we say amen. Now, one last piece of the proclamation. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Twin commands. Repent. Change your mind. Turn from sin and turn to the Savior. 
Sometimes we emphasize too much the turning from sin and forget we're turning to, towards the Savior. And then believe. Believe the good news. Believe the message. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe what John the baptizer said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Believe that. You need both. One missionary tells a very interesting story. He says when he was in India, he was uh, going to this place, this rather obscure little village, and they had planned this big celebration for his coming. And they thought he was coming from the south, but he actually showed up at town from the north. <laughs> so all the celebration was in the southern part of the town. So he had to wait until they could all get up there to the north. <laughs> and then he made his entrance. And he makes the point that sometimes repentance is we're just not looking at the king. We're just not focusing where we should be. Where there's blessing and where there's peace and where there's forgiveness. We're looking at so many other things that we're not focused in on him. And how sad that is. When we believe the gospel, we surrender to Jesus Christ. We trust in him. That's what he said in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's commanding us. There's a danger, I think, in modern evangelistic strategies to leave out the word repentance. We want so eager for someone to believe, to pray a prayer, to do whatever, that we forget to remind them the reason you need a savior is because you're a sinner. I remember a man in my first church and I said, so how did you come to know the Lord? He said, oh, I went forward at a meeting. Really? How did that happen? He says, well, my girlfriend went forward, so I went forward with her. So I said, when you got up there, when did you realize you were a sinner and you needed a savior? He said, oh, I didn't learn that till later. I said, then you didn't get saved that night. Because you must be convicted of your sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then run to the Savior. See? That, that's what it is. Now, I, was, I noticed in the career of Dr. Billy Graham, he began at some point to emphasize repentance, which was a good move. It was a, it's important that we keep it together. That's what the passage is saying. Jesus was saying, repent and believe. Not one or the other, but both. And that's what we need. You know, Paul faced false gospels. People who came into the region of Galatia and said, no, no, you got to become a Jew and follow all these rules before you can be a Christian. Paul said, hogwash. Well, that's not in Galatians, but it should be. He said, listen, curse it if somebody comes with some other gospel. Then the grace of God, repent and believe. That's all it is. But that is what it is. Hmm. All right. How about this calling of disciples? As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. <coughs> Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. 
Now, let me fill in the blank again. In the Gospel of John, the first couple chapters, we have the first introduction of Andrew and Peter and James and John to Jesus. Again, we believe this happened a few months before this event described in Mark. And John tells us about it, Peter didn't. But you might remember that <clears throat> Andrew's the first one who finds out about Jesus, and then he brings his brother Peter to meet Jesus. And in the course of that conversation, Jesus says something very profound. He says, come and see. Come and see. So he didn't call them to this dramatic commitment, which he does in Mark, after a few months. Did you have a come and see season in your life story? I did. Did you? I think my mommy and daddy were trying to make me come and see from the moment I was born, actually. Right? Why do we have a picnic? Because we like to eat? Well, that's part of it. But we want to invite people to meet Jesus by meeting other believers. And we pray they'll have such a dramatically good experience among us that they'll get curious and say, hey, I want to learn more about Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. I, I was amazed when I read the biography of um, Josh McDowell. He's a great apologist. Josh was raised under the worst of dysfunction. His father was an alcoholic. He beat his mother up regularly. Josh had to defend his mother against his dad. It was horrible. It was a horrible experience. And everybody knew this about his dad. And when he went off to college, he was glad to get away from it all. And, and he ran into a bunch of Christians. And he said, man, these people are pretty nice. Like he kind of enjoyed being around them. <laughs> but he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Mm -mm. He didn't want anything to do with that. So you may remember this story. One of the students said, well, Josh, why don't you disprove it? Why don't you prove Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? So he went on a campaign. I mean, in his come and see season, he was searching diligently. I wasn't anything like that, but he was. And then he came to the conclusion after study that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he gave his life to Christ. And we see all the fruit that's been born since through his ministry. Well, we all have a come and see kind of phase. And we just want to remember when we're doing evangelism, it takes time. And sometimes all we're asking somebody to do is come and see. Check it out. Think it over. Maybe you're in that phase right now. It's okay. It's okay. It's part of the journey. But then it comes to the moment of decision. And that's what we see about this story. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon. And his brother Andrew, casting the net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Casting is a great verb. It suggests twirling this net that's about 20 feet wide, maybe, with some weights on the edge. And it falls into the water, and then that's how they capture the fish. Generally speaking, they did their fishing at night. Because in the day, the fish tend to go too deep. So it's generally in the darkness. And fishing was a thriving industry. They sent fish to Alexandria. I mean, fish from the Sea of Galilee. It was a big, big deal. And uh, they were fishermen, and this is what they did. Perhaps in the employment of Zebedee. They're, they're called companions with John and James, and maybe they were all in Zebedee's fishing industry. I don't know if there was a place to eat Zebedee 
caught fish or not. I don't know, but there could have been. And Jesus says clearly, come, follow me. Come, follow me. He is creating a new community. Intentionally. Because he's more like a banana tree, right? He's only going to be there with them for three years. They don't know that. He knows that. The first day he met Peter, you know, if he had told Peter, now listen, in about three years you're going to preach a sermon in Jerusalem and it's going to be a pretty hostile crowd, Peter would have said, I'm out. I'm not going in this direction. Jesus knew that. Peter did. He saw them. He sees you. <laughs> he sees me. He's not walking on the earth now, but he sees us. And, and that should be exciting. It should not be threatening for us. Come. Follow me. And I'm going to give you a training that will help you to fish for people. It's interesting you use that metaphor. It's going to be a lifelong process. I'm still in process. Are you? I'm still fishing. I'm still learning how to fish. Spurgeon said the gospel is a good net. It catches fish. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's what he did. And it called for a stark decision. So in verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. They dropped everything they were doing, and they began to follow him. And like I said, this is now a few months after they've met him, and they're making this complete and utterly, you know, decisive decision to follow him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says something about this. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Yeah. That's what happened to Peter and Andrew. And then we go down the road a little, well, along the sea, and, they, and he sees James and John. And it's not as how they're often identified as the sons of Zebedee to distinguish them from other James and Johns. And without delay, he called them. They were preparing their nets. They're busy doing their fishing work too. It's a very important word in the New Testament. When the Bible says that pastors are to equip the saints, he uses the same word that's used here to describe mending the nets. It's also used for setting broken bones and outfitting ships and armies. All kinds of different ways Cadartizo is used. But here it's literally preparing the nets. And God is in the business of equipping us. We often quote 
the benediction that the great shepherd will equip us. And he does. And he's about that business. And he called them and they left. And they followed him. It's the same sequence. It's the same interaction. It's the same call. One commentator says, Jesus' eschatological urgent sudden call, and it calls for an immediate response. And they made it, and their lives changed. Now I want to ask you a question. How is ministry like fishing? Hmm. It's a good thought. Ponder it. Think about it. Ministry takes patience. I confess I'm not a good fisherman. I don't have the patience for it. But I use a hook and a, <laughs> and a worm. But they were using nets. But it took patience. I also notice that it often comes with routine. You're, you're, you're doing the same thing again and again and again. And often that's true in ministry. You get up, you read your Bible, you pray. These routines, these holy habits are good for our souls. It often comes with some disappointments. There's times when you don't catch. You work hard, but you don't see much. It also, and I didn't put this in the list up on the slide, but this is important. It's best with a team. It really is, because then you've got others encouraging you along the way when, when you have a bad night of fishing or not fishing. And finally, it takes faith to find fish. <laughs> it takes faith to do ministry. It's a lot like fishing. It's interesting that Jesus used that picture. Now, what I want you to know as I'm closing is this. Jesus' discipleship is very unique. In that day, if you wanted to become a disciple of a rabbi, you would study to find the best rabbi you could study with. You would approach him and ask him if he would accept you as one of his disciples. Then he would put you through a Torah test. And if you didn't pass, you don't get to follow. So the one who wants to be discipled makes the contact and then has to pass the test, and then maybe you get to go through some primarily intellectual interactions. Jesus is far different. He's a carpenter <laughs> calling fishermen. He took the initiative, and he didn't put him through any test. Hallelujah, I did terrible on my SAT test. I don't want any more tests. I just want to follow Jesus. Don't you feel that? Do you realize that it's a relationship with God that's so important? That's what it is. That's what the discipling model is. And when we look at Mark and then we go through this, we're going to see this again and again and again. Discipleship is about relationship. And that's what's so unique about Jesus. And when they saw Peter and John, the Sanhedrin, after they had healed a man, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want to ask you, do you smell like Jesus? Do you look a little like Jesus? Do other people see that and sense that? 
Oh, how I hope that's true. I want to close with a story from uh, Francis Chan. He's a wonderful preacher. And in a sermon in call, entitled, Think Hard and Stay Humble, he says, a few years ago, a missionary came to our church and told a beautiful story about sharing the gospel with a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea. At the end of the story, this missionary said, I should really give the credit to Vaughn, my former youth pastor who loved me and inspired me to live for Christ and share the gospel with others. The next week, another guy came to our church and he challenged us to start sponsoring kids living in poverty. The second speaker also concluded by saying, I'm involved in this ministry because of my youth pastor, a guy named Vaughn. I found out both these guys were from the same youth group. Then the next week, another speaker named Dan, you know what's coming, don't you? Told us about a ministry to rescue, a rescue mission in the inner city of Los Angeles. After Dan's talk, I casually mentioned, it was so weird. The last two weeks, both of our speakers mentioned how much impact their youth pastor, Vaughn, had on them. Dan looked surprised, and then he told me, I know Vaughn. He's a pastor in San Diego now, and he takes people into the dumps in Tijuana where kids are picking through the garbage. I was just with Vaughn in Tijuana. We would walk into the city, and these kids would run up to him, and he would show such deep love and affection for them. He'd hug them, give them gifts and food, and he even figured out how to get them showers. Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was walking with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into, and he would tell them about God. People were just drawn to his love and affection. And then Dan said this, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Hearing this made me think, would anyone in their right mind say that about me? Would anybody say that about you? As I thought about this, I prayed, Lord, that's what I want. I don't want to be the best speaker in the world. That doesn't matter. I, I don't want to be the most intelligent person on the planet. That's not what I want to be known for. I want to be known for someone saying, wow, he's a lot like Jesus. Dear Father, you've called us to leave our nets, to make a decision to come to you and follow you, and you'll begin the process of changing us. Yes, you cleanse us of our sins and you forgive us, but we have a life to live here and good works you've prepared in advance for us to do, which you will equip us to do. It's all about walking with you. If you're here today and you're hearing this online or you're here in this place, just understand, repent and believe. That's the gospel. If you've never done that, that's what you need to do first. But if you say, yes, I've done that, then keep walking with Jesus. Keep seeking to live like he did. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious message today. Thank you for the reminder that discipleship includes 
truth to be learned, but also a life to be lived, a heart to be changed. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.